0: This episode of the Medical Liability Minute is sponsored by Physician Wealth Services. Physician Wealth Services is a fee-only financial planning firm devoted to the financial well-being of physicians. Ryan Inman, founder of PWS and creator and host of the Financial Residency Podcast, developed a sense of responsibility to help physicians with their financial goals after witnessing how vulnerable his wife was to poor financial advice during her residency. He was shocked at how many advisors tried to take advantage of her and her peers. Ryan started PWS as a fee-only practice so he could work exclusively with physicians who could benefit from unbiased quality financial advice. Working with Ryan is simple and transparent. There are no assets under management fees, no products being sold or commissions being paid out. Everything is included in a flat monthly fee the way it should be. To work with Ryan, so you can feel more in control of your money, contact him and his team at doctorpodcastnetwork.com/physicianwealth. Again, doctorpodcastnetwork.com/physicianwealth. All right. Welcome to the Medical Liability Minute, where we take more than one minute to go over some cases that were in the news and see if we can distill lessons learned from other people's challenges. We're joined today by our general counsel at Medical Justice, Mike Sakopoulos. Welcome, Mike. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So today we're going to talk about referrals and how referrals can create problems. In this particular case, a um, the patient suffered partial blindness because of a referral, let's dive into some of the details. Anyway, the the patient initially saw an ophthalmologist for what was perceived to be a retinal detachment, but after um, a little bit, after examination, it seemed clear that it was not a retinal detachment, but suspected pseudotumor cerebri. That's P-S-E-U-D-O, tumor cerebri. And I know that as a neurosurgeon, it's related to increased pressure on the optic nerve, often due to something that's taken place um, within the brain itself. Patient had vision uh, problems, here it's described as swelling of the optic nerve. So what did this ophthalmologist do? He referred her to a neuro-ophthalmologist um, and this neuro-ophthalmologist was actually next door. The primary ophthalmologist escorted, escorted the patient to the appointment, so escorted this patient next door to the neuroophthalmologist. According to the details, a visual field test was performed by the staff, but the results were not shared uh, with either the um, the original ophthalmologist or the patient. Um, it was then determined that uh, the Uh, The ophthalmologist did not accept the plaintiff's insurance. It wasn't clear um, whether the patient had appropriate follow-up care that could be paid for, and this will be a salient detail. She ultimately suffered significant vision loss 15 uh, days later. So there were two initial parties, the primary ophthalmologist and the neuro-ophthalmologist. They were both sued. Uh, The neuro-ophthalmologist was ultimately dismissed. Prior to the trial, the original ophthalmologist went to, to trial, and this was a verdict uh, for the defense. The ophthalmologist uh, prevailed. He did not dispute that the patient had an injury, that she ultimately lost vision, um, but it's. I think the point at issue was whether a referring doctor has a duty to investigate whether the other doctor takes insurance. And I I think this is, had this case turned into a verdict for the patient, I think this would have been somewhat shocking because how deep do you have to dig? Um, Here you have an ophthalmologist and neuro-ophthalmologist, they are next door to one another. And so if you tell a patient, I'm worried about a particular problem, I see some issues related with your optic nerve. Um, there's someone next door that can see you in the next five minutes. Hey, wait, I will walk you over there so we can you know, get more information. How can that be a bad thing? That seems like that would be useful as opposed to spending hours and hours on the phone just to find someone who may not even be available to take care of this patient. I, I think it's, it's shocking that this case got as far as it did. What do I, you think,
1: Mike? I, I agree, and I think we can all also agree that retinal surgeons are not like Starbucks. They're not on every corner, right? I mean, this is not like you have loads of options when you find yourself in this position um, to to refer to. So it sounds like the initial ophthalmologist did as good a job as he or she could have done by escorting the patient, find, identifying the right Type of in specialty, the right provider, and physically taking the patient to that office seems to me above and beyond what is
0: required. Isn't it often said that insurance is between the patient and the insurance company? As a, I mean, yes, it's true that doctors are in network with insurance companies, and if that is the case, yes, that is true that um, the doctor has agreed to participate in the insurance. Uh, offering. But if the doctor is out of network and the patient has insurance, whether or not that's covered, that is a matter between the patient and the insurance company. Now, I know most doctors will go out of their way to facilitate payment to the patient. And it's interesting how in-network and out-of-network is generally treated. If you are in-network, the carrier will write a check to you, the in-network doctor, If you're out of network, the insurance company will write the check directly to the patient and then it's your job, doctor, to collect the money from the patient. Do you think that, I mean, how come the insurance companies don't just send the money directly to the doctor? And you've definitely seen it where patients have pocketed the money and said, you know what, I'm just not paying you.
1: I've seen that. I've had that happen to a number of my, my clients i would say that the insurance this is a calculated uh, action on behalf of the insurance uh, carriers to try to create benefits for people being in their network if you're not in our network then you can go try to hunt down the dollars from your own patient right this is a, a, a tactic to try to coerce people into signing up at reduced fees for for networks call me cynical but that's what i believe.
0: You have to call me cynical, too, because (laughs) I I, I, candidly also believe that. But let me um, return back to the uh, to the jury verdict. Apparently, this was a defense verdict. So the doctor prevailed. But in interviewing the jurors, uh, at least two jurors disagreed with the verdict. They believed that the doctor should have been declared liable and pay some type of award to the patient. I think in this particular case. Because the patient was left with a visual problem. And a and visual problem is a is a difficult injury. I would call that, you know, that's on the order in, in my mind. It's a stroke, losing a limb. I mean, it's it's pretty bad. So I I'm not life-altering surp- permanent injury, right? It is. So I'm not surprised. It it just reinforces the notion that if someone has a serious injury, um, you're already behind the eight ball with the jury because it elicits a natural sympathetic response. The jurors are already going to be predisposed to trying to find you some money if the law will allow it. And here you had at least two jurors who thought that would be the case. And because they're and again, I'm just reading how this was presented. It says the patient was offered a mistrial by the judge, but declined. I don't know why the patient would have declined a mistrial because here they got nothing.
1: Well, the only reason is that they that they wouldn't want to to try it again. I guess a mistrial would would line you up to have have another another trial and all the expenses that come with that as far as rehiring expert witnesses. Perhaps that's it. Uh, I think it's important for people to know civil juries, which is what we're talking about here. Are mm-hmm. typically smaller than criminal juries. So if you think that there were 12 people and that there were only two, think again. Odds are here that there were six people. So you had a third of the uh, the jury thinking that there should some compensation should should flow, not one sixth.
0: I generally tell physicians that if you believe you know with certainty how an outcome of any courtroom case will go. I say, remember, a jury of twelve people let O.J. Simpson go thr- go free. A jury I of twelve people, people let O.J. Simpson go free. Now, that was the first time. <laughs> he ultimately <laughs> he ultimately was convicted years down the road.
1: I tell people to go to Walmart at 2 a.m. and watch the people that walk through the door and say, "Do you really think that um, you're going to get the result that you want out of that collection of people? Because those are probably uh, in your jury pool." So. You know, all it takes is the third one to walk through in pajama pants at uh, 2 a.m. and you, you you have the right effect that you want on somebody. It is a uh, a crapshoot.
0: Let's spend a couple of minutes just talking about the obligations when one makes a referral. Um, how deep do you have to dig? How deep do you have to investigate before you say it's okay to send your patient to a particular uh, specialist? I mean. Certainly, you're in the driver's seat. You're the one controlling the decision. So I get that a patient is going to reasonably reply, uh, rely upon your judgment uh, to, to find the right doctor who is available and, uh, and has the, the talent and skill. Um, but let's assume for the moment that – and let's put aside the issue of, of payment. Let's talk about whether the doctor is qualified. Um, let's assume for the moment that the that the ophthalmologist here referred the patient to the wrong type of subspecialist and time was of the essence. Again, the doctor here, the ophthalmologist, referred the patient to um, a specialist, but not one who has the skill to deal with what was perceived to be the underlying problem. And time was of the essence, and ultimately the patient became blind because of that Uh I would not find it shocking for the original doctor to be in the firing line for that type of referral. What do you think?
1: No, I, I think that, that that's quite possible, and we could come up with scenarios where uh, someone makes a mistake and, and thinks that it's um, perhaps a, a cardiac condition when it is some other mm-hmm. type of condition. Right? Or or reverse, thinks that somebody has a gallbladder problem when they're in the midst of, of having a heart attack and, and sends the patient the wrong direction and uh, terribleness uh, ensues. Yes, I think that you are on the uh, potentially on the hook if you send the patient the wrong direction and lose right. valuable time because of it.
0: So we've got the two bookends. I think we've agreed that you probably don't need to Investigate whether the proper insurance, whether the the specialist has the is in network with an insurance company. That one lets the doctor off the hook. The other bookend is that if you send the patient to the wrong doctor, um, then you may very well be on the hook. Now let's talk about things in the middle where you send the patient to the right type of specialist, but it turns out uh, perhaps known or unknown to you that the patient had been involved in six professional liability cases over the prior, and we can make any number of scenarios we want. Let's say three years, let's say 10 years, but he's still licensed to practice medicine, meaning that the board has not yanked the license. The doc, This particular doctor has full privileges to operate um, and to treat patients. There are no restrictions. Um, and let's say you do you do know about this and let's say you don't know about this. What, how does this change anything? And you can imagine all the permutations that are out there.
1: Absolutely. And so the quick answer is uh, there's no hard and fast lines here. You're going to be judged by a standard of reasonableness. And so what, what would somebody in your position reasonably do? And if you, uh, if you think that, sure there have been some some claims against this person over the last decade but they're they're competent and it's the best option for the patient probably going to be all right if the person is up for losing uh, privileges it's been in the news and they uh, have all kinds of substance abuse problems and you would not send a family member there then you know maybe it's unreasonable to send your patient that direction
0: it assumes so many things behind the scenes and the and the The real challenge is that you as a doctor may know something about the specialist but you may not know everything or you may have heard rumor and innuendo Um, it's amazing the number of things you have to keep straight just in terms of making a referral let's spend a couple minutes talking about when a doctor patient relationship is created when it's terminated so in this particular case the ophthalmologist had a clear doctor-patient relationship. The initial pa- the patient came in initially. Um, the doctor said, "You are my patient." Examined the patient, and then said, "You have a problem that I can't handle. Let me escort you to a specialist that can fix you." In that particular case, you have I call it the Schrodinger's cat situation, where it's a patient and non-patient at the same time. On the one hand. Because the doctor assumed ownership of this patient initially, he continues to own that patient until someone else has agreed to assume care of that patient or the patient or doctor formally terminate the relationship. So let's talk about what a good handoff looks like. Let's assume for the moment that. The neuro ophthalmologist was the right person and took the right insurance. How could you, how can you, how can the first doctor be off the hook if the second doctor was liable for something? I mean, the initial doctor wants to do good. He wants to say, my task is to make a diagnosis and to shuttle you in the proper direction of the right specialist. I have now done that. So, how does he extract himself from the picture? So he's not lingering if there's a problem.
1: I think that at least under the facts here, he he really did that by getting the patient to the right uh, provider, who then saw the patient, or at least some services were were performed. So, it ball was clearly out of the original ophthalmologist court and into the the neuro ophthalmologist uh, court handoff had been made and the patient was receiving some degree at least of diagnostic uh, care when the first ophthalmologist bowed out
0: the question then comes down to how are relationships terminated are they implied or are they formally terminated and I think the answer to that is quite simple if in doubt you formally terminate it you formally do this so for example you would say in the chart, say, this is the diagnosis that I made. This patient has a problem that I do not take care of. Um, this would this problem would be solved by um, a neuro-ophthalmologist, and this is the likely type of treatment they would render. This is care that I do not render. The patient has agreed to see this particular specialist for follow-up treatment, I mean, Putting those bullet points together would likely create a nice shield Um, in in terms of saying you did the right thing. You found the you made your initial diagnosis that was proper. You then shuttled the patient in the proper direction. The patient agreed to that treatment plan. Do you see any holes in that plan? Are there ways to keep the doctor, the initial doctor, on board for a later liability claim?
1: I think that that's absolutely the right way to do it with the documentation in the in the chart of what is what has occurred um, in the thought process at the time. So I think you, that's a good good way of handling it.
0: And you do want to add the patient agreed to the plan. If you have this conversation with the patient and they agreed to the plan, describing the partnership that you've created with this patient and how and why they agree with it is a good thing. It does bulletproof you for any challenges. Down the road. Look, let's get real here. If a plaintiff attorney sees two doctors on the chart, he'll initially go after both people. At the very least, they're going to take a deposition of each physician to see who knew what and when. How does that comport with the documentation? And are there any holes? And are these people going to start pointing fingers at each other? Um, But if it turns out that you have done a nice job in terms of finding the proper specialist and you've terminated the doctor patient relationship you should be able to extract yourself from from this type of case
1: and done properly most patients are um very thankful for a good a good referral right or that you've, you've done this so um you know hopefully you can minimize the the likelihood of, of future unpleasantness because you've had a good rapport with the the patient and the patient is is focused elsewhere.
0: Why don't we close by talking about terminating a doctor-patient relationship. Um, There are a number of situations where it makes sense. Let's say the patient hasn't seen the doctor in a long period of time. Um, There are practices who have, as a matter of policy, if you've not seen me in X number of months, I want to formally terminate. You're welcome back to the practice, but you come back in as a new patient one of the reasons they do that is just to make sure that if something happens in between, that ultimately there is no paper trail showing that this was a patient within the practice. There are other situations where the magic is not there any longer, and the doctor does not want to see the patient. The patient may not even want to see the doctor any longer, but you don't want to leave that to guesswork. If, if, if the patient says, I'm going somewhere else, for example, do you have to formally terminate that relationship? I would argue if the patient says, I'm not seeing you any longer, Dr. Siegel. I'm going to see Dr. Sakopoulos," And I made you a doctor here in this particular case. It's my lucky day. Yeah. I'm going to see Dr. Sakopoulos. Um, I wouldn't leave it at that. I would basically put into the chart that as per um conversation with the patient today they said they that they terminated their relationship and will follow up with Dr. Sakopoulos in doing so you don't need to send the patient a 30 day notice that you'll take care of urgent and emergent conditions they can find the names of doctors on the on the website for the county medical society if the patient has sent an unmistakable signal that they're leaving your practice and going somewhere else um, particularly if they've decided to see a specific doctor, you can document that. Um, now, are there holes in that? Sure, there may be holes in that, but I think that is often simpler than saying, well, you're my patient for another, another 30 days and I'll continue treating you for urgent and emerging conditions, or until you find another doctor, whichever comes first, yada, yada, yada. Um, if a patient is one foot out the door and has uh, told you they have one foot out the door, I would just document that and that is the end of the doctor patient relationship
1: i i agree with that but i think i would still send a letter i don't think you need to give the 30 days but what we don't want is the patient coming back saying whoa whoa wait i never said i was going to go over to Sikopolis. um I, I don't know where you got that from or why that's in my chart i think chart it and then send a letter saying this confirms our conversation that you've selected yeah someone else's or psychopolis and will be happy to provide your records to to his office uh upon authorization or something that unmistakably lets the patient know and shows communication that everybody was in agreement on a specific date uh still is good but i am 100 percent with you that you do not need to give the 30 days once the patient has already said i've selected um, selected another physician Or in this Uh, case, a a pseudo uh, physician that you're sending this patient over (laughs) to darken my door with.
0: I I agree with you completely. Yes. If the patient has said they are leaving, send the patient notice. This will confirm our discussion today that you have elected to leave our practice and we'll be following up care with whoever the other doctor is. Yes. I also like the idea we will make uh, records available upon your request and authorization and so on and so forth. I do think that Wraps everything up uh, with a nice little bow right here.
1: And on to the next patient, right?
0: And, and on to the next patient, yeah. So it's always a challenge to terminate a doctor patient relationship. Um, we had a case come or a, a physician the other day uh, describe how a patient was um, propositioning the scrub tech and wouldn't stop. And the patient was in the middle of a treatment plan. I said, What do you do? I said, look, you have to fire this patient. Um, you can still treat them for urgent or emergent conditions. And I don't think there's anything related to the treatment plan that was urgent or emergent. But um, if, if they're propositioning um, someone who works in your practice and they feel creeped out and they feel as if this is sexual uh, harassment, I think you have no choice but to act. I don't know that you need to go into the details um, in the termination letter with a patient, you just need to say, um, We're giving you notice that we're terminating the doctor patient relationship. We'll take care of you for 30 days for urgent and emergent conditions. Um, a list of doctors can be found on the County Medical Society website. Uh, we'll make records available. We wish you well. Uh,
1: uh, you're, you're absolutely right. And for those out there that think that this is an over, uh, reaction or uh, two people on the podcast being overly sensitive, I will tell you that there are multiple million dollar lawsuits that have happened where an employer had an employee be subject to repeated sexual harassments by a patient. So this is another area of liability you need to be worried about beyond what comes from the patient. And this is a big exposure and certainly one that's very timely right now in the Me Too era.
0: So here we were talking initially about professional liability, but we moved over very quickly to talk about the potential for employer, uh, employment practices liability problems, in this case, sexual harassment. And there's a separate type of insurance that people can purchase for this. It's called EPLI or employment practices liability insurance. It costs almost nothing. If you've never heard of this, ask your broker, what is EPLI? Again, what is E-P-L-I? Um, it's the type of thing that if you, you, if you go your entire life without getting sued, you'll be still delighted to have made those premium payments. If, on the other hand, you have it and you are sued for something like sexual harassment or employee discrimination, you will be dancing up and down that you have this coverage because the coverage typically gives you a million dollars worth of legal defense, as well as a payment uh, for a judgment. And I can tell you that the costs go up pretty quickly with uh, employment uh, litigation. A lot of people don't have it and they have to pay out of pocket. So they, they roll over pretty quickly. But if you're, if you're innocent, if you did nothing wrong, you certainly want the ability to file a defense. Anyway, food for thought. I don't want to digress too much with a separate domain of law. There are many things that are out there, but we we think we bring solutions to the table here, do we not? We try. (laughs) So in short, if you're going to refer a patient, make sure you do it properly with a nice beginning and a nice end. Um, In addition, um, I think that um, just be cognizant of the different types of uh, ways to begin and end a uh, a doctor-patient relationship. Before we close, don't forget to reach out to Ryan and the team at Physician Wealth Services by going to drpodcastnetwork.com slash wealth so they can help you with your finances in the same way you take care of your patient's health. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MED-JUST. That's 1-877-MED-JUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their Members Only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of Medical Justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's IN as Frank O, news, at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, if you're not an existing member of medical or dental justice, but want to bulletproof your practice from medical legal threats, our admin, Wendy Cates, is your best resource for information about our protection plans, implementation best practices, and pricing models. Wendy can be reached directly at 336-358-5587. We offer discounts for large groups, and protect doctors of all specialties in all states. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.